the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Piedi. So, Matt Tonys, I understand that snow has been seen on the dead seas of Barsoom. Is that correct? That is correct. Snow has been seen, and it's water ice too. So, so it's, it's actually snow as in snow that you'd see here on Earth. Now we should explain what Barsoom is for those who are not acquainted with the writings of Edgar Rice Burroughs, going back to what, oh, at least a hundred ten years ago or something like that. Yeah, we're going back a ways now. Sure. Uh, but Barsoom and in, in, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, John Carter of Mars, pulp thrillers, was the native word for Mars. That's the Martian word for Mars. There are many others, but that's the one that's stuck. Not from not from uh, Burroughs, but Burroughs Burroughs Barsoom is the one that is the one that kind of stuck in the popular imagination. Now he depicted Mars as a dying world, but of course, what we know yeah. now is that it's pretty well dead already. Yeah, he, he, he depicted it as kind of in the Ray Bradbury tradition, although not quite as romantic, a little more uh, comic book. But yeah, it was still couched in that H.G. Wells notion of a of a dying planet. You know, about a planet. You know, it's kind of dwindling and fading away. Now, however, we learned a lot of things about Mars over the years, of course, that Mars couldn't have life. Maybe it has microbial life, but now it has snow, water-based snow, not snow like you'd find on one of the moons of Saturn or Jupiter or something like that. Water-based snow, does that prove there's life there? It doesn't prove there's life, but it, it establishes once again and this has been established so many times now uh, that Mars has all of the chemical necessities for life. It has all the ingredients for life. So it shouldn't surprise anyone if we detected life on Mars, microbial or, or otherwise. And I fully, I fully think that there is, is, is life on Mars and it's only a matter of time. And uh, that's why I'm disappointed with uh, NASA's Mars exploration timetable. It just seems to be that one rover after the next, you know, I'm always reading these new proposals for new fancy uh, devices to be sent to Mars, but none of them, none of them, with a, a few scant exceptions, have any hardware to actually detect active life on Mars. It's all indirect, indirect. So That's the current probe, the current probe, which, of course, was done by the University of Arizona designed this okay that's the one that's 120 miles from where i live but they designed it in such a way the tests were designed in such a way that if life were there they wouldn't detect it oh yeah the soil could be teeming with microbes and it would not be able to detect it the most it would be able to detect would be the chemical ingredients of those microbes and thus a likelihood that, well, you know, you've got the ingredients here on the landing site so there very well could be life but no it would not be able to say yes there is life let alone what that life would look like or, or behave like. So that's that's the disappointing aspect here for me. Mac, uh, I want to ask you a quick question. There there were those photographs, and, and I, I don't know if you'd stayed on top of this or not, or whether there was ever a resolution to this, but there were those photographs, I think, in, in the last year that had surfaced of these weird, huge circular holes in the, in the Martian surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. Did we ever yeah. find out anything about those things? Do we know what they are? No, I never felt it kind of was kind of a story there for a while. I remember they were calling them the Seven Sisters because they found seven of them, I believe. And uh, there was all speculation. No one really knew. One thought was that they were like um, uh, holes, perforations in like a, a lava sheet or something like that, uh, something to do with volcanism. 
but yeah, I just kind of story kind of went away, and I haven't I haven't heard about that since. Really? Yeah. Well, just because um, you know there were there was the one picture that was just sort of arresting. You look at it and it's like whoa! It, it was almost like a perfect circular hole. Yeah, and it just looked like if someone had dropped a, a ball of ink onto the onto the map. Yeah, yeah. Then there were some other photos. I think uh, at least one other photo that surfaced where you saw some light falling inside of it in a way where you could see the curvature of the hole going down. Exactly. Yeah, and that was the one that was the real stunner for me. Yeah, because you could see right. the little lip of the crater, or not crater. Right. It wasn't a crater. Well, I guess it could have been. I guess it could have been something that fell through. But regardless, yeah, it was definitely a circular, three-dimensional hole, not just an imaging artifact it, or something. It didn't look like any crater I'd ever seen because it was just. It looked like it went straight down. Well, I mean, it could, I mean, I suppose it could have been caused by, uh, you know, a meteor or something, but the surface it struck would have been very different than, you know, your typical terrain that you see. Right, right. A collision. It's yeah. almost so like it's something hollow. It could have punched through like, um, I don't know, like gravel through a piece of um, styrofoam or something. Exactly. So there was, there's been no follow-up about that at all? Well, I mean, I'd like to, maybe there was and I missed it, but I would have liked to have thought that more, um, more images were taken of that region, different lighting angles, because potentially you could eliminate, you know, the inside of that, um, of that cavern or whatever it was. Yeah. yeah. And I never saw any images like that. That doesn't mean they weren't taken. Maybe they were just very disappointing. Or maybe well, they were taken and they were, I don't know. <laughs> More interesting you know. than not, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's frustrating, yeah, because you get evidence like that, and it's like, hey, this you know, this might be able to lead somewhere. But I, without without humans on the surface of Mars, we can keep sending rover after rover after rover, and I just don't think that these tantalizing mysteries are going to be resolved in any satisfactory way. So basically a Martian could come up to the rover and knock on the door. And well, we technically, wouldn't know this one it. does have a camera, so yeah, it could. Be, that would be the only way, though. It's not going to see anything unless there's a, you know, some sort of outcrop of fungus growing by that doesn't happen to look like a rock. Yeah, it, it could detect microscopic life. So yeah, if a Martian squirrel hops by, it might be able to detect that. Now, the other thing is that assuming conditions on the surface of Mars are not hospitable to life, and that any intelligent life migrated to the interior of the planet to stay warm, to have a climate that's more conducive to life. Mm -hmm. Unless they choose to contact us, nothing that we're sending up there is going to confirm this or deny this. Well, that's kind of the same argument with UFOs is that, you know, some people say, you know, what is the point of studying uh, UFOs, uh, assuming that there's some form of intelligence? Because, you know, unless it wants to make contact with us, nothing we do is going to change its mind. You know, it's been incredibly patient thus far. You know, what, what are we going to do? It's going to make it suddenly just deign to make contact. So, yeah, the same argument like, would, would um, apply to an intelligent civilization on Mars if such a thing exists. Well, and I'm pretty skeptical, actually, about that. I think I think Mars very well could have had an intelligent civilization of some kind. But as to whether it's there now, uh, I start to, I don't know. <laughs> that, that that one is difficult for me. Well, we've seen nothing that would you know indicate that directly or indirectly at this point. You know, there's been no weird surface activity, even along the lines of what's sometimes seen on the Moon. There's been nothing, to my knowledge, along those lines on the surface of Mars that we've seen. Good point. There are some there are some lunar transit phenomena that would suggest some sort of active presence of something, whereas on Mars. But to be fair, on Mars you have a more dynamic environment where, where transient phenomena phenomena like that would be uh, kind of erased by the dust and the wind, 
you know, because it is pretty windy. In fact, it looks like just, I was reading Universe Today last night, and it looked like the Phoenix Lander got nailed by a dust devil. Because it has a little, I'm not sure what the, what the atmospheric, not the atmospheric, but the meteorological term for it is, but there's a little thing that hangs there that registers the wind. Wind bell? I don't know. But anyway, it started rocking insanely. Uh, it's leaving them to believe that um, that a dust devil passed right over the right huh. over the uh, lander. Would it be a wind vane? It would be a wind vane. Wind vane. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, that sounds that sounds more like it. Vane like Gina's vane. That kind of vane. I'm um, so vane. Vane. Oh, yes, not vane. Yeah, vane. No vane. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like kind of like that. Except it has a little it has a little pendulum hanging, and that thing started shaking and jittering. And they actually huh. had a little. There's actually a little movie of it. Really, I haven't yeah. seen that. Huh. Yeah, it's kind of neat. Before we get into any more neatness. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net we want to hear from you if you have a comment or question about the paracast send it to news at theparacast.com that's news at theparacast.com and don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gina and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We have the neat Mac Tonys with us, and he is an expert on Mars, but is not on Mars. And he also has some fascinating speculation to voice about the UFO mystery, and we're exploring a whole bunch of stuff here. Now, just to kind of sum up on Mars, although it's a very intriguing subject, basically most of the speculation from people like Richard Hoagland, none of that seems to have shown any evidence yet of having any possible accuracy. Well, some of it, to be fair, has. I mean, some of his early uh, general observations about the Cydonia region, he did hit on a few things that, that we have found. Now, in the years, in the, in the 90s, after that, he started in with some things that really haven't been uh, verified by, by probes. And, and Richard Hoagland will say, well, this is because it's been airbrushed, et cetera, et cetera. So hmm. there's really no way to verify it one way or the other. Well, they actually have Photoshop artists there who airbrush this saying, wait a minute, this is going to vindicate Hoagland, so we can't do it. Essentially, yeah, that's that's kind of what I get from his uh, recent output. But, but some of his early observations regarding the face and everything, I mean, there's really nothing uh, There's nothing inherently faulty with, with some of his deductions, some of his observations, rather. 
better word than deductions, I suppose. But uh, hmm. and uh, and it's not you know it's not just it's not just Hoagland, and that's a point that I you know I, when I had my Mars website active for for several years, that was a point that I returned to again and again. You know, it's the debunking media loves to seize on Hoagland as the voice of Mars, as the voice of, of Mars anomalies, and would make it out to would make him out to be the only person who you know has the audacity to voice some uncommon, unorthodox ideas regarding Mars and the possibility that it was once inhabited. But there are a number of a number of credentialed people who uh, have voiced some very interesting arguments in favor of artifacts on Mars that are much more qualified than Hoagland. I suppose it, it, it's a matter of what you consider qualified to talk about Martian artifacts because that's really not a discipline that has matured here on Earth yet. <laughs> You know, like Mark Carlotto, he recently recently discovered that he'd um, archived all of his uh, previous websites and put them under the umbrella site. It's Carlotto, not U.S. For anyone wanting to to look at that stuff, but that's a treasure trove of great image work, lots of great animations and comparisons between the the old 1970s photos and the and the Mars Global Surveyors data. So I mean, there are, there are lots of people who have been commenting on this, albeit in a in a quieter way. And Hoagland. Hoagland's pronouncements are always very loud and very, um, very noisy, and, and can be very off-putting because of that. And but but for no, he's by no means the only person who has who has entertained the, some of these strange ideas. What about the strange ideas? Let's go through some of them. What do you think are the strange ideas that do not pass muster, and the ones that seem to have some level of veracity, or at least haven't been totally disproved yet? Sure. Uh, the one that uh, springs immediately to mind because the, it was literally the first thing I noticed back in 1998 uh, when the first Mars Global Surveyor images started coming in. Hoagland had talked about something he called the honeycomb, uh, which was this lattice-like, intricately geometric structure between um, the features popularly known as the fort and the city pyramid. Nothing like it showed up on, in the high-res images. Nothing remotely like it. It simply wasn't there. It was. It was reading too much into the into the. I don't think he was making it up. I think he honestly thought he saw it. But what he was seeing was it was a an effect brought on by the different computer filters. You know, you, you, it's a computer imaging artifact, and you guys are pretty familiar with that. And the well. The, Kind of the long history of mistaking computer imaging artifacts for actual physical structures. Well, Mac, let me ask you a question about that. I mean, what is Hoagland's? Uh, just because I don't know, what's his what's his professional background? I'm not sure. I mean, he's had. It's kind of interesting. He's done some interesting things, I believe. I think he was an advisor in some capacity to Walter Cronkite during the Moon missions. But I'm not sure. I, I know he was a planetarium director. That's about it. I mean, he doesn't have a PhD or doctorate, but you know. I don't think you. I don't think you need to have. I got an, an argument on my on my blog with someone about this recently. That the need for for academic credentials. In this case, it was someone talking about uh, evolution. I, I forget the guy's name. I think it might have been Jones. I I don't remember, but he's a geneticist, and his argument was that humans have stopped evolving and. Uh, there is no more Darwinian natural selection going on, and you know, a thousand years from now, three thousand years from now, a million years from now, humans are going to look essentially identical to what they look like now. What? Right. I know that was kind of my reaction as well. Well, you know, a, a blogger um, who I don't always agree with listed mm -hmm. several arguments. He's an advisor to the Governor Palin campaign, or <laughs> vice president, right? Not, not quite that bad, but kind of. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and of course, he's not taking into account uh, self-directed evolution either. You know, the 
kind of ignoring the whole transhumanist imperative there. And I don't think he was attempting to encompass that in his, in his argument, to be fair. But there were a number of factors that I think he kind of overlooked. And anyway, this guest blogger, not guest blogger, but this other other blogger, just, you know, he's not a geneticist, but he just pointed out a number of things. You know, I think the guy's wrong. You know, here's why. And uh, on my blog, someone uh, commented on this story and said, you know, who's this guy who's not a geneticist to be criticizing this guy who is? And I, I jumped in and said, you know, hey, you know, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of this other guy, but his points are valid. If you can, if you can drill a hole in one of his points, I mean, the guy's not dumb. He's he's got a pretty astute grasp of of genetics and evolution and biology, etc. You know, he knows enough to be able to see a, a spurious argument and to and to lob some potential um, grenades into it if need be. And the argument just kind of went on like that. The guy said, you know, no, unless, you know, he's he's no one to to uh, criticize this other guy because this guy is uh, a member of the establishment and this guy isn't. Therefore, uh, his arguments are null and void. And I don't agree agree with that. I think as long as you are a, have a degree of uh, information at your disposal and you can make educated, you know, judgments and, and evaluate data, uh, you know, it's science is anyone's game. A PhD doesn't necessarily make you God. Well, some PhDs make you something else. <laughs> That's pretty true. And yeah, and, and to be to be fair, I sometimes most of the time I'm I'm inclined to follow the the established crowd. But there is a one thing that I that I really appreciate about the internet, for example, is that you have lots of people who are not experts in the classical sense. And this makes me sounds like makes me sound like an apologist, I I think, but that's not what I'm trying to to convey. But I think if you get enough people who are informed and in the know, there's nothing. To, wrong about, you know, you know, punching some holes in some arguments, if only for the sake of seeing how the other guy responds. That's healthy, democratic debate. Now, sure, you've got wackos and, and nutcases who want to push these, you know, baloney agendas and foist them, and, and a lot of them deserve to be ignored. And, you know, thus, thus the Internet, you know, thus, this, thus these wild claims that get tossed around that really don't deserve any attention at all. You know, but who's to be the judge of that? And that's that's the interesting interesting problem, and that's the same problem that's befallen Hoagland. When do we draw the line when it comes to a wild idea? I, I suppose is what I was saying. And uh, and with Hoagland, that presents a very novel uh, challenge because a lot of a lot of his ideas are extremely wild, and and the uh, the problem is you know verifying it with established science, which is a very slippery prospect with Hoagland because so many of his ideas, by by the definition, are conspiratorial, and all the real data is hidden. So it becomes kind of a faith-based venture with a lot of his uh, arguments. We have to believe we're being lied to. Hey, neighbors. The easiest online meeting service, GoToMeeting, just got easier. If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time. Because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web, save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. 
This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're not being lied to when we say that we have Mactonies, and we're talking about the mysteries of Barsoom, also known as Mars, the Dead Seas of Mars, and all sorts of other stuff. Now we're focusing on Martian mysteries, mentioning Richard Hoagland. But maybe he's being a little too blatant in the self-promotion. Is that also hurting? I think so. I, it seems to me that he cannot see anything in the in the night sky, anything in, in the in the solar neighborhood that's not artificial. It's gone beyond you know formations on on other planets uh, exhibiting traits in keeping with artificial origin. Now everything is, is artificial. Entire moons and asteroids are artificial, and it's getting it's getting tedious. One of the one of the things that I think that you could that you any reasonable person could use to shoot down empirically Hoagland's arguments are his imaging work. Uh, he runs these images through filter after filter and um, you know we're asked to accept essentially on faith that he is um, an image enhancement specialist, you know, a right. digital imaging processor and he's clearly not and you know there clearly are people who really are. I, it's the power of suggestion. I, I think if you get an image and you can you blow it up and you manipulate this and manip- manipulate, it's like looking at a television. It's like looking at television static, and 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 peering at it, over pondering it, and kind of becoming entranced by it. And uh, the latest is this analysis on his website, which I encourage everyone to look at because it's quite entertaining. EnterpriseMission.com. It's a it's a photo analysis of the asteroid Steins which the Rosetta spacecraft flew by recently and took images of. And it's a, it's a roughly diamond-shaped uh, feature, or not feature, but object. And, uh, of course, Hogan concludes that the entire moon, that the entire asteroid is a is a, an artificial object. His argument is just, uh, you know, it's fun to read as entertainment, but to me it's very clear that Hogan operates in this little interzone between science and entertainment. And I've always thought of it as like when you watch professional wrestling, how they have kind of disclaimer at sports entertainment, you know, and oh, yeah. it's not yeah. it's not uh, NBA, but it's not uh, a sitcom either. It's kind of this weird little hybrid, and you you know you know that in the back of your mind as you watch it, but you kind of suspend that suspend that knowledge for entertainment's sake, and that's that's the same feeling I get when I read Richard Oglin. It didn't always used to be the case. I think some of his earlier writings had a had a, a healthy speculative tone. In other words, he wasn't proclaiming that this is the way it is, this is the way it the way it must be, because I know. And uh, his writings now have a very um to me, uh, anyway, a very puritanical beating over the head ham fisted quality to it that I don't like because it's very I don't want to use the word cultish because that has very distinct anthropological connotations which don't really apply, but at the same time, they do kind of apply. They, uh, it's almost like a cult of personality. Uh, Hoagland says so, therefore therefore you're right. Yeah, it's a cult he's, of Hoagland. Yeah, yeah. A cult of Hoagland. He's got his audience. He's got a yeah. niche audience. He's not going to appeal yeah. to most people. He knows that. And in a strange way, I don't have, I'll have any real grudges with Hoagland about that. I mean, he's, it's very obvious to me he knows what he's doing, and he's appealing to an audience, and that's fine, because I consider him an entertainer. Well, it's funny you bring up the Steins object, Mac, because I had actually... Not knowing that we were going to focus on Hoagland, I had actually been looking at this and uh, and was going to specifically tell you mm-hmm. that uh, I want to bring this up and say, you know, what what the hell is this guy doing? Because I, 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 I've read this and I've looked at 
his supposed image analysis, and it's just silly. I know, it's silly. It, it, it's really ridiculous. And this is the thing, I've said it many times in the show. I mean, I don't, people have actually now dubbed me a ufologist. I know they've probably dubbed Gene that. Gene might technically be more of a ufologist because he's been involved in the UFO field for a long time. Well, someone like called a, me just a personality. Somebody who well, has the initials yeah. JC, and that's not Jesus Christ, said so. he's just a personality. He's not a theorist. He's not an investigator. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a personality. Wow! There you go. Well, you wouldn't call I've yourself an investigator. Yeah, me too. Well, I've I been mean, called worse, but, you know, on the air sometimes, but then I can't <laughs> play that. No, but the bottom line is that uh, at the end of the day, I, you know, image analysis is something I'm definitely qualified to offer opinions about. I gave a, a talk recently at a, at a small UFO conference in Jersey City where in my presentation I said specifically the masses are not qualified to be image analysts. They're not. Just because you have a copy of Photoshop doesn't mean you know how to use an emboss filter doesn't mean much of anything and this is what I see in Hoagland's stuff where he's he it's really selective filtering of reality to fit his worldview this thing this Stein's object um, looking at his analysis trying to say look it's just like a facet cut diamond it's utterly ridiculous it, it's just stupid I mean I'm looking at this thinking what it, it just looks like another big space potato what the hell is he talking about and, and well, it, you know it does have a, a superficial tapered point at the bottom I use the word bottom in quotes because there is no, I'm well aware that there is no top and bottom in space. Right, right, right. But you know what I mean. Yeah. But other than that, right, I don't see a diamond. No, he just, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll focus on, and he does this, he focuses on these games of light and shadow play, and he tries to make these distinguishable as features. And it's like, well, no, that's light and shadow play. You know, what are you doing? Well, to me, the so, ultimate, the question I grapple with when I look at his photo quote-unquote enhancement work is whether he really believes it or not and and i'm honestly not sure i know i think he does because you've seen the the, the alleged android head on the moon oh god the c-3po head oh. oh my god Jeez. i mean we're looking at we're looking at something that's just um delusional and um he put that on it's all it's on the line if he put it on there but his publisher did put on the spine of his book dark mission and just, i would be horrified to be associated, to have my name on a book with that image on it. I mean, to me, that would just seal my fate. I'd never, I'd never want to publish a book again. I don't know. It, it's, it's really frustrating, of course, because, like we've said many times, you try to have serious conversations about this, and the problem is you have these self-perpetuating situations like Copeland and Coast to Coast. They keep giving him an audience... He keeps coming on and talking to these, you know, the people, the the children of the night who listen to this stuff. The children uh, of the night. There you go. I mean, and I like going, that. oh, it's amazing. And, you know, all it does is perpetuate the kind of soft thinking that's going on that I think is really putting a huge drag on our civilization at this point. I mean, I, you have to assume that the majority of people are not informed. And by saying that, I'm instantly dubbing myself an elitist. Okay, you know, my brain still works. What can I There's say? There's nothing wrong with being an elitist. And that's another misconception <laughs> on behalf of too many people. That's a political so, concept, too, Mac, that people are elitist, therefore we don't want them. We want just ordinary, average people who say, you betcha, you betcha. <laughs> Hey, 
Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability, and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. You betcha we're talking to Mac Tony's on the Paracast, and he's not an ordinary average person. Sorry about that. Oh, you ask me a few questions, and I'll find the answers, and I'll send them to you. <laughs> I'm glad somebody got that. That was my, oh, that's my first man. ever Sarah Palin imitation, by the way. Oh, you did it last. so well. Oh, so you man. just you needed the, the little bubbly, irritating fingernails on a blackboard voice, but uh oh. <laughs> but Uh-oh. we would never call Mac Tony's Caribou Barbie. No, but we 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 might refer to him as Tijuana Tonys. <laughs> <laughs> Well, at least uh, right. Uh, there you go. Sorry about that. So I'm uh, I'm looking here actually on the Wikipedia page for uh, for Dick Hoagland, and uh, I don't know. It, it, he he's an entertainer actually. He he. It looks to me like he's another one of these guys. Uh, he was a consultant to CBS News during the Apollo program. Says who? Says he, him? I mean, the problem with Wikipedia. Look, at one point there was an entire. Wikipedia page that would, was put up by the uh, nutcase formerly known as the guy in Prague, and he mm. put up this this long intricate uh, Wikipedia page about himself, and nobody touched it until I went to Wikipedia and basically. Oh, I read it. Out it's no longer on Wikipedia, it's, but it's yeah, out it's there. gone. That's right, it's gone because he put the whole thing up. And it was Wikipedia, hysterical. <laughs> well, it, it was it was ridiculous, and it was all put up by that guy. I don't even want to say his name. Right, um, right. But he put it up there. I, I approached Wikipedia and kind of like got into it with the guys on Wikipedia, and they realized, hey, wait a minute, this is old junk, and they removed it. They totally removed it. This is something that it's still know, floating around out there, just not on Wikipedia. Well, yeah, yeah, just not on Wikipedia. So, right. so we've got Hoagland's page here where he talks about you have basically a career where it says Hoagland served as the curator of astronomy and space science at the Springfield Museum of Science located at the Quadrangle in Springfield, Massachusetts, and was a consultant to CBS News during the Apollo program. Blah, blah, blah. Then it kind of like goes from there forward. Meanwhile, there is no, there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing mm-hmm. on his actual background. Well, one thing that, that bugs me that raises a slight red flag, and I'm not claiming that Hoagland was not, didn't, was not in fact a consultant to uh, Cronkite, but when I hear the word consultant, I have noticed from reading self written bios by the various people in the in the UFO community I really don't know what consultant means what's it, basically it means you have some uh, six degree of separation affiliation with something mm-hmm. and, and I found that people exploit knowing someone who knows someone and they oh well I'm, I'm a consultant 
and I do get a little tired of that. I don't know if that's the case in Hoagland's case or not. I'm just pointing out that, that I do see the word consultant overused in people's resumes. Right. Well, the, the bottom line, when you start to do some due diligence on this guy, this is something that I have found is a consistent element with people involved in the paranormal field. Essentially, the idea that a lot of these people seem to have no verifiable backgrounds. They just appear and start talking. And you, you do any kind of due diligence. I mean, just, just doing the armchair research that you would do with a browser page in front of you. And you find that essentially these people simply appear out of nowhere and they're just there. And that always gives me a pause for concern. Mm -hmm. Because it's, you know, the bottom line is that if you don't know where someone comes from, if you have no provenance on them, then essentially you, you have nothing. And it seems like in this field there are so many people like that. It's ridiculous. And nobody bothers to do the most basic kind of due diligence on these people. Yeah, before you know it, they kind of metamorphose into, into underground media superstars, and by then the damage is done. You know, years ago, when Jim Mosley was a vaguely serious UFO researcher, Saucer News would occasionally run articles where they would expose the educational background of certain UFO researchers. Oh, this person doesn't have a real doctorate. This person never went to that particular institution. In other words, they vetted these people. Of course, we don't do that anymore. So someone could say, I'm a doctor in this, or I have a degree from this institution. And now, of course, what, you can't find the evidence of that? Well, of course, the silence group, the budget has people there who go around and they take all that information and they get rid of it. Well, it, it reminds me immediately of, of Bob Lazar, who claimed to have uh, attended MIT and I think one other institution. I always thought that Bob Lazar's story was good because of the of the element of humility in it, the things he didn't know. And I always wondered, because they checked, you know, whether he had attended, the, I can't remember which institution it was, but I think it was MIT, and then he never had. And the first question to my mind was, why did he, why did he put that out there? I mean, was that an intentional fuse in his story that someone could ignite to blow it up? I mean, was that a plant? His story would have been much more airtight and much more consistent, and he just left that out. And just, I think you stuck with this real background because one of the yeah. messages that he relayed was that you know we, sh I'm a second-rate scientist. What am I doing out there looking at this stuff? And, you know, it should be it should be you know the first the top-rate scientists in the world out there doing this work. And I'm not saying I believe Bob Lazar. I'm just saying for for this the sake of someone waging an interesting little media experiment, why would you make it so easy to deflate a significant part of your story by by claiming affiliation with a with an academic institution that you never attended? That someone could easily check, and you know they're going to. You know what? People do stupid things. They use that, unfortunately, yeah. as evidence that somebody is involved in a conspiracy. It's not proof that somebody lied. Nobody right. could possibly lie about their educational background <laughs> unless they become CEO of Tandy Corporation. Wait a minute. The CEO of Tandy Corporation, one of the former CEOs, Radio Shack, guess what? His credentials were fake. Oh, wait a minute. Hey, which, no, there's which a one? Which one? I forget. There was one that goes back. Well, no, but there was a ago. better example. There was a woman who worked at MIT who was involved with admissions. Right. She was really high up in the organization. She was an executive at MIT, and they found out that she had completely fudged her academic credentials. And she was high up at MIT. <laughs> I, I, this happened like last year or the year before. I, I remember reading all about it. it. It was just like ridiculous. And she had risen in power at MIT. She was like some 
big machramach in admissions. And how do you, you know, do that? How do you pull that off in academics? I mean, people don't. I tell you how, because especially in academics, people are really sloppy. Man, I, I, you know, look, yeah. I've been associated with a number of very high-end educational institutions as an adult teaching. You know, right now I'm teaching at Yale. And my experience with these really big schools, I mean, Stanford University, NYU, NYU's got an amazingly good reputation. What an unbelievably messed up, screwed up place NYU is. You, you would not believe it if you saw what goes on there and the amount of nonsense that gets tossed around. And people who have these highly powered positions at NYU who are, you know, one step above being compl just completely stupid. I was astounded at what I saw at, at some of the places I've taught. So, you know, in academics, I mean, you have to remember, a lot of the people that end up working full-time in academia are people that literally cannot get arrested in the real world. And so they end up there. So the point is, I don't know that I'm shocked by any of this anymore, and especially when you're playing in the weirdo sand, you know, in the weirdo sandbox, in the sandbox of the paranormal, you know, someone like Lazar, I guess what happens with people who for lack of a better term, you know, compulsive liars. They spin these webs of deceit where I think some of them forget what the truth is. And, and they fall into these webs of deceit and they just start piling lie upon lie upon lie to the point where, you know, he says, oh, you know, I was at MIT. Well, no, you weren't. Well, sure I was because he's convinced himself that he was because he has this memory in his mind of going there. Yeah, because there are elements in yeah. his story where he where he acknowledges gaps in his memory, you know, supposedly because mm -hmm. of uh, being forced to consume certain drugs at, at S4 while he was involved in this UFO uh, re reverse engineering project. So you have an element or element of uh, distortion, you know, embedded in the story already. Well, there's a TV show now called My Own Worst Enemy, where we have this person who is a spy, a paid assassin for the government, and he has a chip in his head. And that chip oh, creates right now. It's gotten kind of lousy reviews and lousy ratings, so it may not last, ladies and gentlemen. But if you get to see it, the concept is that he has this mild-mannered personality with the wife and the kids, but that's all a chip implanted in his head that creates that reality that he's really the spy. So maybe these people who have this other life. They can say, hey, it's implanted in my mind. Once you've uh, conceded that uh, that the government is in collusion with gray aliens, et cetera, et cetera, that's not, that's not a huge step. In fact, it's, it's a pretty logical uh, next step. Well, at that point, of course, you can believe anything. Everything yeah, but, is true. Right. You, you've crossed the threshold, and your mind becomes... Uh, ultra-receptive, receptive things that aren't even there. It can't, it can't differentiate between signal and noise anymore. Well, it's back to the old Robert Anton Wilson reality tunnel thing. Yeah. You know, it comes right back to that where you look at how people parse the world. I, I'm not going to be proud to admit this, but I was watching on YouTube some clips from this show, Trading Spouses. You guys heard of this show? I've heard of it. I would not ever want to see it. Right. I, Shame on it. you, David. No, no, no. Well, check it out. I, okay. I actually got there by a link someone put on the uh, political site, Crooks and Liars. And, and here's the thing. So you had the, and you'll understand for, in a minute why I'm bringing it up. There were these two families, one down in Louisiana with this, like, 500-pound psychotic fundamentalist Christian woman and her family, who is – the entire family is traumatized and abused by her, truly. I mean, she is just an evil person. And then the other family is in Massachusetts, and 
it's like the the hippie family with the very slim, very attractive, sort of you know very sweet, kind hippie gal, like former hippie gal. Now she's just like a cool mom. So they trade places. And the reason I went to go watch this is that I guess the deal was that, as you might imagine, that the folks down in Louisiana get for however long it is this really nice hippie mom. And they fall in love with her, and they don't want her to leave at the end. They're like, oh, please don't go. Stay. Please don't stay, because mom will come back, and she's nuts. And then you have this 500-pound crazed, I mean, and look on her face. And she comes home and starts yelping and screaming, and just like her wide, crazy eyes screaming, did this woman do tarot cards here? You know, she brought the devil in here. Ah, I have to tear everything up. You know, and she's screaming at her family. And I, I look at this and I think, what reality tunnel does this woman live in? What kind of craziness is her day-to-day -day life? And you stop and, you, and you, you realize that there are people who look at what, when they look out of their eyes, they see something so completely different than what the three of us might see, that we have no reference for what they're looking at. We, we don't, we would not vaguely understand their worldview. This woman looked at everything as far as, you know, Jesus, God, and the devil. That's it. Everything was put through that filter. Everything. And there was no other way that she looked at the world. That was it. You know, we see it, look, we see it in the political situation in the country right now. You know, people, there's, there's a polarization happening. And it's, it's, I guess it's always been there, but it's more extreme now. And it's been, it's been yeah. stoked, and it's like these people have been let, let off their leashes suddenly. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. know. It's ugly. They're being drummed up. It's very ugly. And I think that we see, basically, we see this polarization manifested in just about every area of our society. And certainly, anything touching the paranormal is subject to that same thing. You know, you have the, 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 the crazies on one side who, you know, have aliens talking to them through cartons of cigarettes that are implanted in their eye sockets. And then you have, on, on the other side, you know, the debunkers who could have an alien craft land on their head and they would say, oh, oh, it's not really there. They could have, you know, an alien being cracking their head open with a Galliano bottle and they'd be saying, oh, oh, it's, it's, I, I, it's nothing. It's nothing. And I wasn't there. Numbers. I didn't hear it. I never heard debunkers. of it. They're pseudo debunkers. They're wannabe debunkers. Yeah. Debunkers in my book are, are great. They're fine. They're necessary. But in order to debunk something, it has to be bunk. And that's my problem with, with these media darling debunkers that, that appear on every single uh, television show dealing with, with the UFO subject. Because, you know, again, we're back to entertainment. We're back to science as entertainment again. And these guys are just like Hoagland, just except on the opposite end. Those There's are the no house difference. debunkers. Yeah. They have to have debunkers. They have to have equal, fair, and balanced coverage. Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. 
down. But right now, a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380. 800-715-4380. Or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com. 1-800-715-4380. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. not fair and balanced here we only want the truth and we're trying to get it we're digging it out of mac tony's and we're trying to unearth this but you've had encounters from time to time with some of these house debunkers haven't you uh yeah i do i have it's it's not pleasant and my reaction to it is much the same as when i have encounters with died in the wall true believers who uh, no amount of evidence will dissuade them from abandoning their delusions yeah, a delusion is a delusion. It doesn't particularly um, impact me, whether it's uh, against some ingrained bias against a given phenomenon or if it's a wholehearted endorsement of it. It's just, it's the same thing, and it's deeply boring to me. It's someone whose mind has, has spontaneously amputated, and uh, that's just my reaction to it. It's just almost a visceral disgust. Well, Mac, I mean, this begs a question then. So... Do you think at this point that it's almost an exercise in futility to try to have rational discussions about any of these topics? I mean, are we just spinning our wheels here? I think trying to bring reason and rationality to the media at large is futile. I think that's a fight that uh, ufology, a word I am very sick of, by the way, but I guess it still has some bearing. I think that is futile. I think that that, uh, reason will prevail in the details on a small scale. And I think uh, that's one that's one asset that the internet provides. It's never going to be one. What's going to happen is, is that is that uh, people will find, and this is already happening. And I think I think you're already aware of it. But the people the, the people that want to think and who are skeptical and are open to different interpretations and keep an open mind about things are going to gravitate towards their own groups. And the, the, the wild-eyed contingent, are, they're going to keep to their own groups. And that's really, when, I don't know if winning is, is the operative term there, because you're not, winning entails that you're, you know, you're winning someone over to your side. Right. And no, that's not going to happen. Uh, the most that we can hope for is that... <laughs> that's hard. I guess I think... this is a long, a long roundabout way of saying no. We yeah. can't win. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, it depends what you're after. I mean, you know, you have to differentiate, I think, between the personal quest and the desire to share with others. You can't put a gun to people's head and say, you know, here's the truth. At that point, you're doing something that is certainly uh, not sharing knowledge. If you put a gun to someone's head and you say, you have to believe this, you have to think this is real, there's no way you can win with that. You know, that kind of coercion is just not really very productive. In the end, I think it does come down to the individual trying to find some truth. And the other thing about what I keep running into in in this field are just people who have just commercial agendas. They just want to push 
they're poison, and they don't really care about any truth besides their own because their truth is the thing that's written up in their book, and they're going to sell know, it. They're not the ones who are the problem. It's the people who so unthinkingly absorb it. They're the problem, and well, yeah. those are the people who bother me more than the more than the obvious um, snake oil salesman, like mm-hmm. uh, Stephen Greer or you know you know the. the people I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, these, these people what, are Wait a minute, Stephen Greer is, wait a minute. Hold obvious on, Stephen fraud. Greer. Oh, no, wait a minute. You're saying Stephen Greer is an obvious fraud? Really? Yes, I am. Obvious no, no, fraud. No, 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 no. We, at the Paracast, we disagree. We think Stephen Greer is, he's misunderstood. <laughs> All right, no. <laughs> no, no, he is. No, no, no. Basically, and no, and, and just to prove it, I put him in touch with Harvey Firestein. He's going to get it all worked out very soon. <laughs> Meanwhile, sorry. Yeah, you know, Greer is, I think, representative of the worst aspects of what this field is about because people look up to him. You know, people look at what he did uh, back in 2001. And I'll tell you what, recently I watched the, um, the press conference from last November that Leslie Kane and uh, James Fox have put together in Washington. And that was really, really solid. I mean, that was just a line of highly credible people, one after the other. I didn't see a single poison pill on that stage. No one. Yet at the same time, as credible as that was, it didn't get anywhere near the kind of visibility that Greer got in 2001. So, Mac, I mean, what do you think is behind that? you got the good people, and nobody wants to watch them. Yeah. Or not nobody, but much less, it gets much less attention than Greer with his, you know, entertainment shtick. What do you think? Well, I mean, you could always argue that, yeah, there is indeed a conspiracy to keep, you know, media coverage away from the, But I don't think so. I th- I'm kind of an Occam's razor adherent when it comes to the media. And I think generally when it comes to the media, the, the simplest answer is that keep it dumb. I don't think you need a big X-Files style conspiracy to keep it dumb. I think that is... Uh, kind of an organic process that just disturbs of its own volition, almost. Mm-hmm. I try to invoke conspiracies as seldom as possible. I mean, obviously, yeah, there are there are indeed agendas to keep information secret. I'm not denying that. When I see when I see a travesty in the media as far as coverage, my first thought is not that the government has engineered this behind the scenes, you know, to make to make sure that the true information is seen by as few people as possible. As far as the keeping it dumb part, I think there's an important point to make there, where people assume that the media is keeping it dumb because the media assumes the audience is dumb. What I've discovered in interacting with media is that for the most part, the people, the decision makers in positions of power in the media, they're not too bright. It's kind of like a a lot of them seem to be creating stuff, assuming that everybody is at their level. And and I think that's what ends up happening. It's like you you get the line producers are kind of given the task of creating content that appeals to the audience. And it's almost like they consider that they are the audience. And a lot of them aren't too intellectually curious. You know, well, that and, in, a, in a few yeah. television things, unfortunately, they've been good ones. But I'm well aware that they are the exception. And from talking to the people directly, you know, directly producing these programs, you know, they're very aware of, of this atmosphere as well. And in fact, I get requests on email, you know, from researchers that have been hired by some television company to put on a show about something. And they, first of all, they want to do their research for free by emailing me and expecting me to um, just oblige Supply them. Supply everything, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and just, and just, and just 
be so entranced and so flattered by the fact that the television industry is contacting me. Oh my God, that I, you know, I should uh, be falling all over myself to provide them with all of the information I can instead of requesting a paycheck, which is ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, that's uh, they, they pick a subject that they're not passionate about, they're not particularly interested about. They're they're interested in selling a show, and that's the bottom line. Right. And it doesn't really matter. The subject matter is is uh, secondary at best. That's right. And a further qualifier, like what you said, is exactly accurate, Mac. They don't want to pay for the stuff they're getting. So in the end, the old saying, you get what you pay for, yes. completely applies. At that point, yes. they, you're going they, to get they're, mediocre results if you're lucky. Yeah. It's low-hanging stuff. I It was, I think, late last year, I was contacted by uh, someone who was putting together a pitch for a show to one of the big cable networks. Make a long story short, he called me up looking to get a bunch of knowledge about the O'Hare incident and uh, from uh, from 2006. And it was pretty clear that this guy only knew how he wanted to sensationalize the material, and he wanted me to basically consider coming on camera and agreeing with his sensationalism and, and supporting it. He, he needed some, somebody credible to agree that his stance on this stuff, which was completely sensationalistic, had nothing to do with the evidence, any evidence. He wanted somebody looking to give him credibility. And I, I spent a while on the phone talking to him saying, look, this is not as you think it is. It's something else. And he's like, well, but it's possible it's as I think it is, right? And I'm like, I really don't think so. Well, couldn't you just say on camera that it's possible? And it's like, no, I'm not going to do that. No, actually, I don't think it is possible. Oh, and at the end of the day, it was like, well, uh, uh, yeah, okay, well, thanks for talking to me for an hour, and I appreciate it. Goodbye. You know, they just don't respect anyone's time or effort. And at that point, you know, yeah, they do end up getting the people who, like you said, Mac, it's people who really want to be on TV, and those are the people that end up, you know, getting involved. And it's, it's very frustrating because you don't certainly don't get any good information, or at least not a lot of good information. My first experience with this TV thing we're talking about was back in 2005, and it was a program for the Discovery Channel. And the team out of England who was filming it, they flew me down to New Mexico, and we hung out. The, it was a fun trip, great trip. I got a free trip out of it, so I can't really say that I, you know, got nothing in return. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we spent a day in the Natural History Museum, and they asked me all kinds of questions about Mars, but they were all very leading questions, like, "What do you think about the uh, Martian cover-up, Mac?" And so I'd respond and say, "Well, when you say cover-up, what do you mean?" You know. And I thought it was rather articulate and, and answered their questions, but they didn't use one of them. I did not appear in the documentary. But however, the people who did, I was very amused to note, were pretty much, pretty much made fools of. They weren't even discerning. They didn't even give the, um, the upper hand to the, de to the requisite debunkers. Even the debunkers are made to look like idiots. So you've got Seth Shostak running around holding uh, telephones up to his ear, you know, you know, like he's trying to listen to alien broadcasts on a telephone. Um, you got Eric Von Daniken sitting out uh, in Egypt in an easy chair, baking in the sun. Nice. Like a big piece of sausage or something. <laughs> and it's just one thing like that after another. It's just absurd. And uh, my first reaction when I got this DVD, was I was waiting for me to appear and wondering, kind of dreading how I was going to be portrayed. Mm -hmm. And by the time this DVD was over, <laughs> I realized that I wasn't in it. I more or less just breathed a sigh of relief. And I think what people need to take from that is that they have to assume that these same kind of shenanigans go on at every level of media coverage of fill-in-the-blank. Basically, this is not isolated to this particular area of interest. 
This is how the media deals with everything, the mainstream media, because it's about selling soap. It's not about conveying information. It's basically about distraction and keeping your eyes glued to the screen till the next commercial when the volume goes up and the music and the sound work together with the imagery to captivate and mesmerize you and make you feel insecure and not good enough and to make you feel a desire for something you don't need. I mean, that's really sad, but it's true, I think. Coincidentally, I was just thinking about TV this morning. I was just thinking about television because it's been 10 years since I had a television, and um, I cannot stand it. I cannot stand even going, and this makes me sound like a crank, but I can't stand going into a restaurant that has, you know, the big flat screens in every corner. Yeah. Because it's just very oppressive and distracting to me. I look around and everyone else is just like uh, fine with it. And I, I feel, <laughs> I feel a little bit alienated. I want to, you know, tap these people and say, doesn't this bug you? Don't you feel like this is a violation of your of private time that you should be eating and talking with your friends? You know, instead of being, uh, I don't know, yelled at by these by these infernal screens. Nothing wrong. There's nothing. I'm not a luddite. I'm not saying television is evil and sh- we should drag them into the streets and and you know bash them with hammers. Although sometimes I do feel like that. But I don't know. I just think that we have we've reached this level of passivity that's that's rather frightening. Well, it's the human has been reprogrammed. We should pick that up in the second hour and talk about some transhumanism. Sure. We'll define it. Before we break for the hour, I wanted to ask you, Mac, you were working on a book at one time, and I hope you're still working on that book, which would deal with, in whole or part, this crypto-terrestrial theory of yours. Where do we stand with that? It is in the works. However, I do have another product to plug in the meantime. Plug away. Uh, it is the new Dark Lore anthology. This is the second annual uh, anthology put out by Daily Grail Publishing. And it should be going to press here like like any time. I've already seen the proofs. It looks really good. And it has an essay by me in it. It's got Nick Redfurness in there. Um, a bunch of other names, some of, some of whom I'm familiar with, some of whom I'm not, which is a good thing. I'm really impressed by it. And I'm not just saying that. So anyway, that'll be available. I'll keep your eye on uh, dailygrail.com and uh, see when that when that comes out because it'll. I'm, I'm sure it'll get some hype when it comes out. But uh, right now, I'm pretty. It has an essay by me, and it's not about crypto terrestrials, although I do mention that. But it's about an alternative um, idea, alternative thought experiment based on based on artificial intelligence and the, the possibility that we might be in dialogue with some sort of advanced machine intelligence that's appealing to us on a on an archetypal level. It sounds almost like John Keel. It's John Keel meets William Gibson, I guess. But yeah, but yeah, it's a good a good observation. It is a little Keelian. And we've invented a new word here, Keelian, and we'll explore Keelian. that word, Keelian and Tonian, or whatever it's gonna be on the other side of the Paracast. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate 
awaits. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedi. Hour two of the Paracast, where the one and only Mac Tonys returns to regale us with stories of Barsoom, stories of credentials that do not exist, stories of crypto-terrestrial UFOs, and other kinds of UFOs, like we're communicating on a collective unconscious level with this computerized intelligence, and when you raise that towards the end of hour number one, I was thinking, John Keel says that computerized intelligence is insane. Is insane? Yes. Well... Why not? Uh, uh, Charles Forth has said the same thing. You know, if we're dealing with a with a collective mind, you know, what what makes us think that it's in in, in charge of its faculties anymore? You know, because chances are it's quite ancient, and there is such a thing as you know bit rot. The computer programs do go, if not necessarily insane, they become corrupted and do bizarre things that they weren't originally intended on to do. So the problem is uh, here. This is not the kind of computer that can be rebooted. Yeah, you're exactly right. It, because well, that reboots it? the entire reality structure. Or maybe it does that every so often, and we're not aware of it. Well, maybe it's not the same. Doesn't it's not to say it necessarily is is uh, is senescent. Maybe it's uh, simply going through a, a cranky phase. You mean like humanity? Maybe it's eccentric. Well, humanity seems to be going through a crazy phase. Humanity seems incredibly eccentric. And uh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe individual people are are okay but the masses themselves are psychotic i don't know i i you know i look at what goes on in the world on a day-to-day basis and i challenge anybody to give me a, a working definition of sanity yeah i think i think you, you touched on it in on the individual level people seem okay to me by and large there are always exceptions numerous exceptions but by and large, yeah, but when you get to a group level, it seems like you reach a certain threshold that our primate nervous systems just simply can't accommodate, and it breaks down. Yeah. I mean, it, it might be the kind of the crashing of individuality into the dynamic of the collective, and we still don't really know how to make this all work right. But now that I'm thinking about individuals, I'm thinking about that crazy 5,000-pound Psychotic Christian fundamentalist. Five thousand. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Five hundred pound. Five thousand. I like After, the image of a five thousand pound psychotic yeah. uh, fundamentalist woman more though. I know, it's kind of the name more. of the person is Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> oh, stop! Come on. No, 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 no. Jabba, Jabba was was pretty cool, you know. Well, anyway, no. I mean, she. I mean, you could see it in her eyes. She's she's just she's crazy. She's totally out of her mind. And, um, but again, you're getting this. You're getting this from the same media that we are criticizing. I mean, who's to say this wasn't a media artifact? Who's to say she wasn't hamming it up a bit for the camera? Oh, I don't know. I, I, you know, looking at the expressions on her family's faces, <laughs> as That's uh, all that, that convinced, oh, yeah. yeah, they were like, uh, I really got the feeling that they were just, they were very scared of her. I mean, she had like what looked like a perfectly cool family. But she was just like nuts. She's just out of her mind. And so, 
you know, and, and, it, and, it, and it trickled down to the rest of the family. You know, the husband was completely submissive. Uh, she's just ordering him around the house. The kids are all totally submissive, and they're, and they're, they're very physically afraid of her. You know, um, and, and so you look at that kind of dysfunctionality, and I think maybe the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, maybe there are, at, maybe at the individual level, there's some clear thinking and sanity going on, but then you end up in this kind of dysfunctional dynamic, and what ends up happening is that the least functional person in the group, if they're dominant, now poisons the whole group, and everybody at that point is getting a little crazy. And, uh, and that seems like we see that reflected in our society in many ways, where at the macro level, we're, we're agreeing with decisions that, because maybe we don't feel them on an individual level, you know, oh yeah, 700 billion to bail out a bunch of banks, yeah, sure, here's the money. Where if you had, a, if it was you writing a check for every dollar you ever had or was, or, or was gonna have to like bail something out, you'd be like, wait a minute, no, 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 how am I gonna eat? What are you talking about? I have to give you all my money for some person I don't know to help me maybe if it all works out? And you want every dime I have and every dime I'm ever going to have? Seems like a bad deal. But yet, you know, on an individual basis, people say, well, I would never agree to that. But on a collective basis, people are like, oh, yeah, all right. You might be aware of the recent, a recent uh, science news item. They did uh, tests have shown that during periods of uncertainty or fear, the human brain is more likely to attribute patterns or to perceive patterns where none actually exist. And hmm. I think that's something that we all knew intuitively anyway, but it was nice to have it empirically demonstrated. It certainly explains a lot to me. I'll tell you what, let's take this down a reality notch here to the reality of UFOs or lack thereof. Now, the more we hear about what's going on with this mystery, the more that, at least for myself, and David could speak for himself as he generally would, the more I feel that all these wishes and hopes for disclosure, it can't happen. It won't happen, not because the government has secrets it wants to keep, but because they don't have a clue about what's going on and how can we trust them if they did try to release something to us. I agree. I mean, I'm in your. I take your side. I don't. This disclosure thing is. I am so tired of hearing the word disclosure every time I open my inbox. Yeah, I mean, I, it has all the earmarks of a, of a quasi-religious movement. It's a secular religion, uh, a very secular, cynical religion for the early 21st century, and um, that's the simple explanation for it. Well, it's kind of like a second coming kind of hope here that you're oh, hoping absolutely. that advanced yeah. beings from other planets will come here to save us from ourselves. Absolutely. It, I mean, that's it's obvious. Um, you have the same thing going on in the in the techno crowd, but the singularity, the rapture for geeks. Oh, <laughs> well, it's an old joke, but it's still valid. Well, I'm very old, so I need to catch up. Oh, the rapture for geeks. Yes, that's 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 the kind of dismissive term for the the singularity, which a lot of people mistakenly think of as a as a as a single. And in some ways, it is a, a single distinct event, but. Uh, not in the not in the rapture sense that a lot of people seem to be waiting with bated breath for it to occur. But yeah, you've got you've got all these. The 21st century has already spawned all of these kind of millennial, you know, oddly outdated but very millennial um, secular religious impulses that we didn't really realize we had, and they're just now kind of. And I think the internet is largely to blame because it's facilitated them to such an extent that they've become uh, more fleshed out. They've, they've come into their own in a way that they really hadn't even as early as the uh, turn of the turn of the new century. 
and the disclosure movement, or whatever you want to call it, is the most repugnant, one of the most repugnant of them all. Well, now wait a minute. Now, not that I'm going to defend the disclosure movement per se. You can certainly understand why people want that. I mean, you know, people. Oh, it's, it's not a case of you know the desire is misguided. It's a, it's. A, I mean, the basic ideas behind it are, are are admirable in the sense that people want truth, but the idea that it's the cartoon flavor that it's adopted. You know, that the, these saintly extraterrestrials, and, and you, you get one of these disclosure people, and they can tell you exactly how many alien races are visiting us, of course, and oh, yeah. every little detail you could possibly want to have. They've got it all memorized, just like, you know, just like this, that fundamentalist Christian 5,000-pound woman you're talking about. You know, she could cite you chapter and verse. It's the same thing with these people. It's very oppressive, and they're, they're so uh, enamored of themselves and so convinced that what they're saying is, is the is essentially the gospel. I just find that extremely, extremely pathetic. Given that so many of of the central pillars of their of their faith can be traced directly to certain individuals in in the counterintelligence community and in the in the marginal UFO community of the, of the 1980s and 70s. This is the stuff out of uh, Bill Cooper and John Lear and and Lazar and etc. It's this, this MJ12 mythos, you know, writ large and and fleshed out. You corner one of these people and they they'll defend everything. They don't they don't want to they don't want to risk sacrificing anything that could, that they can potentially extract some meaning from, even if it's transparently bogus. They'll defend Billy Meyer reluctantly. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll couch it somehow like, uh, well, you know, well, some of his pictures are fake, but some might be real, you know. Um, it's all very predictable. It's all very uh, disappointing. Well, coming well, along with that is exopolitics, of course. Yes, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, when I talk about, when I've been saying disclosure, that's pretty much what I meant was exopolitics. Same, yeah, same, same thing, as far as I'm concerned. If there's a difference, I'm not really aware of it. Well, there, there had been this week yet another email about these... Uh, Pickering potato heads uh, at the UN with further meetings about what to do about the alien situation, and you know, I get these emails from people who are, you know, sort of part of this uh, this slipstream of stuff. And it, this email lands in my inbox, and and I look at it, and, and it's these this Sean and Clay Pickering, whoever these these guys are. It's kind of just like a joke. Yeah, they met with Source A, and Source A says that this and this and this is happening. And, you know, the problem, of course, being that everybody is not only drinking the Kool-Aid, they've got IVs into the Kool-Aid. So it, it's always <laughs> turned on. Drip. Yeah, absolutely. They're you know, the Kool-Aid drip. They got, the, they got the Kool-Aid pump in their pocket, and it's just like pushing it right into their spinal cord. You know, you know we're back to the, the, the reality tunnel thing. They've got their little world view, and... It's programmed in a way to deflect any kind of criticism because it's very shaky ground. Now, something I have to say about that, having now gone to not one but two X conferences and seen the kind of people that show up, I mean, you have the Predators, the uh, Rob Simones and the George Norris. You have the people who are Predators. They have no real legitimate interest in this stuff. They're just basically looking to make a buck and looking for attention because these are people that desperately want to be heard. And then you have the prey. And the prey are people who, they have indeed looked at this as a new religion. It, that's what it's become in their lives. But what I've specifically noticed with a lot of these people, unlike people who maybe go to, like, let's say, a real church, right, where 
going is a very social endeavor, and a lot of these people are very outgoing, very warm. You know, you meet the Mormons and say what you want about them, but they're actually, a lot of them are very friendly people. And this is how they sort of promote what they're about. And there is a certain degree of comfort with some of these people that just because, you know, that maybe they're personally warm, where with a lot of the UFO cult, as it were, a lot of these people have very serious socialization issues. They don't know how to speak. They don't know how to express themselves. They're they're kind of like wound up and going in circles. And when they stand in front of you, they're not talking to you. They're talking at you. Yes. Basically, there's a stream of stuff coming out, and all they want is validation. They don't know how to have discussions. No, and I, I think that's very unfortunate. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I've encountered it, and it's 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 painful. It's 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 sad, because the empathetic part of me doesn't want to rain on these people's parade, even though I know I can't rain on it because they know they're right, and you can't change that. But at the same time, you have to uh, drop them in your kill file eventually. Yeah, I because think that's you true. Can't, because when they get so desperate that you're hearing allusions to death threats, etc., and they're doing it, and they think in their mind that they're doing it for your own good, you know, yeah. to scare you into confronting the truth as they as they know it, that you know it becomes it becomes awkward. It all has some benefit in the end. They say <laughs> this has a great benefit to everyone. of Erie Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at www.erieradio.com. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Ben, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, Attack. of the Rockwells. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack. of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Mac Tonys, talking about belief systems and systems for deception. So where do we get the theory here that the government is doing lots in the disinformation game? Do you subscribe to any of that? Oh, absolutely. I think the government has had a, a huge stake in the disinformation game for a long time. And I'm not the expert on that that some people are. But, well, I mean, the quintessential case is the Benowitz affair. Now, here's a case where it's terrestrial technology, but they, the operatives in this case knew that by exploiting uh, the extraterrestrial meme, in this case, uh, they could totally derail any serious attempt to um, 
to unravel a perfectly terrestrial secret that had to do with uh, transmissions that weren't meant to, meant to be overheard. I think that basic scenario has been replayed uh, in, in you know slightly different formats for a long time. Uh, I don't think the Benowitz affair was the uh, has been the extent of it at all. I think that uh, the government has an active interest in perpetuating the UFO mythos, and by the UFO mythos, I don't mean the idea that there are unexplained objects in our airspace, but the, the very specific mythos that uh, we're making deals with gray aliens, patently ridiculous things, things that aren't impossible. I'm not saying there couldn't happen. Uh, there's no physical reason why we, we couldn't be in collusion with with spindly gray aliens making swapping hardware for fetuses or whatever. But I think that the people the people in charge of um, spreading these disinformation, disinformation campaigns are well aware of how potent these myths can be when propagated correctly. They know their victim. You're talking about prey. I think they go after their prey in a very, um, a very astute manner. And I think ufology as a, as a fledgling, well, I'm not sure fledgling is the right word considering it's been going for 60 years now. But as a as a discipline, and I'm using big, fat, bold-faced quotation marks around discipline, is <laughs> the victim here. Well, clearly there's a situation where um, you've got so many convoluted threads happening all at the same time, and uh, you know you talk about disinformation. I uh, at a recent UFO event, the Culture of Contact event in Jersey City. I yeah, I've been meaning to speak with um, Mike Cleland, who attended that, and uh, I'll probably yeah. talk from him pretty soon. He's a great guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's a great guy. Really sweet guy. There were some very, very cool people, and we're going to have a whole other episode of the show devoted to uh, what went down at that thing. There was some interesting, I mean, the turnout was, was not very strong. Which, uh, who knows what, what that's about. Uh, Jeremy actually, uh, Jeremy Vandy went to a pretty, uh, uh, deep degree of effort to, to get the word out there. I know uh, he did. And just from reading the literature, it looked like one of the most intelligent UFO venues I've seen in a long time. And well, it's depressing. Th there was some intelligent stuff going on. There was some less than intelligent stuff going on. I mean, uh, you know, I, I guess I'll save it for another episode, but there was the, the, the couple, who had done the documentary about speaking to the indigenous peoples about the nature of reality, uh -huh. where you know you you, you sort of had the uh, South American shaman uh, laughing at the idea that uh, humans were evolved from from monkeys, you know, saying, "Well, no, obviously we came from space," and you know I hear that kind mm -hmm. of stuff where you know now we're hearing that evolution is bunk, not from uh, you know a, a Christian fundamentalist, but now we're hearing it from you know someone in the bush. Right. Okay. All right. That's good. But but actually, what happened was, and again, I don't want to really go into it here, but uh, the couple did a Q and A thing afterwards, and 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 the the woman of the couple said something that made me quiver with rage, quiver with rage, and and I loaded up a Stinger missile, I pointed it at both of them, and I launched it, and I it blew them into little tiny shreds. Just I blew them up. They had shrapnel on them. No, they were they were at that point they they were chum. Disintegrated them into little pieces. Yeah, absolutely, because they said something absolutely heinous. Well, you know what? We'll give people a hint that next week's episode will cover that in more detail. Ah, come yeah. on. <laughs> well, no, I'll just tell. You, well, I'll just well, you poor Mac. We're not going to leave Mac hanging. Mac's like, what are you talking about? Well, you know, basically they were talking about this notion that you know people come to Earth 
to learn things, which I, I completely agree with. I actually, I'm right on the same page with them with that. I think that life is pretty much just one big school. And I, I believe that's why we're here. I could be completely wrong about that, but I think there's a lot to that. And I, and I actually personally, I to a large degree buy into that belief. And it's a belief, who knows? I, but I, I really feel strongly that there's a good chance that's true. But then, the, now, you know, they're talking in the tri-state area, for crying out loud. The woman says, yeah, you know, we all choose to be here and we all choose to go what we, we, we go through. Even those people in 9-11, they chose to be there at that time. Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. That's just I great. Just, I mean, you know, I know people who died in that event. And, and in fact, I, 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 I was sitting there, I was quaking yeah. with kind rage. Just, just, and I, and I basically raised my hand and said, you know, the, the blood of the dead have asked me to tell you they did not choose to be there on that day. And I, and I had to do everything in my, in my power to keep from lunging onto the stage and hitting them. Because it's just when you're in the, in the New York area, you don't know who's in the audience. Maybe there's someone sitting in the audience whose husband or wife jumped out of one of those buildings. This is not something you want to say, especially if you, you know, claim to be some, you know, new age sensitive thinker. Um, and you say the most incredibly insensitive, asinine thing that you possibly could. And, and again, I understood that the, the sort of the, the nature of what they were trying to convey, but to do it in that way was so deeply hurtful. Oh, it, it comes was just, back to that socialization factor you mentioned. Yeah. You know, these people are speaking at you, not with you. Well, there's a, there's a tone of superiority, which I guess, you know, there are probably a lot of people who listen to the Paracast to assume that I have that same tone of superiority and that I feel that way. Well, you're an elitist. Um, yeah, you know, a Yale faculty <laughs> member. Yeah, I guess I am. That's right. We need mediocrity. We need more mediocrity on this planet. Man. To hell with elitists. Oh, no, we need to evolve. The hell with mediocrity. We need to evolve. Mediocrity is the path of least resistance. You know, we, that's not going to work anymore. We, like in this country, we've just had eight years of mediocrity and worse in our administration, look what's done to us. It's just it left us in shambles, you know. And and that's not you know, people want to take a, a you know a partisan view of that. It's like, look, whether you're Republican or Democrat, you know, if you're someone who had a retirement account and you're someone who had some savings, you're hurting. I don't care what your political background is, you're hurting because of some very bad decisions made. Not even over the past 15 years, arguably over the past 25 years. But that's a whole nother. Well, let's not go down that road today. So, Mac, here's a question for you. How did you get involved with the SETI guys? Because I remember when I heard about you going to, to write on uh, on their website, I thought, uh -huh. it's a good well, choice on their part, but what's the story with that? Okay, well, first of all, SETI.com was not the SETI Institute, which is SETI.org. Okay. Uh, SETI.com was a commercial website. It still exists, although, although I'll be in a different format. But uh, I was writing um, uh, twice a week for uh, just uh, general interest pieces on, on space and UFOs, and it pretty much, was pretty much given a free license on what to write about. It's, you know, I don't have to abide by any strict guidelines as long as it's relevant. I've written about oh, the, the argument that we inhabit a computer simulation, all kinds of subjects like that that interest me, and they're fine with it. So it's, it's a nice little writing gig. But, yeah, a lot of people naturally assumed that I was writing on behalf of SETI, which not. And anyway, the, there were problems with the domain name. The person who owned the domain, the SETI.com domain name pulled out or something. So the website is now about SETI.com. 
and all the content's still there. Uh, a little improved interface. It's a little smarter looking blog, but uh, it's been changed to about SETI. So that's kind of the story there. Uh, hmm. I was never a spokesman for SETI, and I don't really see that happening anytime soon. <laughs> but uh, I was able to visit on a completely unrelated uh, venture. I was able to visit SETI headquarters in Mountain View, California, a month or so ago. Uh, for a television documentary that I'm involved in. And that was fun. Now, uh, I, there's a rumor I've heard about on the web. Uh, I just wanted to ask you about this, and you can you know, decline any kind of comment on this. Sure. But I had read a rumor on the Internet that all the water coolers at City were actually not filled with water, but were filled with uh, grain alcohol. So what's the story? <laughs> You know, I, didn't, I didn't go to the water coolers. We had our own bottled butter in our in our rented van, and uh, so I can't confirm nor deny that. But it's mm -hmm. possible. Yeah, it's possible. Is it possible or probable? Well, no. I mean, there, there was some. Uh, this was this was the. It has a very corporate. Uh, the building is is very is very sleek, very posh. Has a very Silicon Valley feel to it, mm -hmm. and um, well, it's in Silicon Valley. It should, but uh, it's it's a very agreeable headquarters, but it has a very corporate uh, sheen to it. I mean, you walk in, you, you, you're very much in the presence of, um, oh, I don't know, you could just see lots of men in suits having meetings, you know. And it had some interesting exhibits. It's not exactly a museum, but it, it kind of has this veneer of being a scientifically friendly um, establishment. To be absolutely honest, I'm not exactly sure what aspects of SETI go on there because obviously they're not looking for signals. They do have a radio station there. I answered a few questions for the radio station, just kind of spur of the moment when I was there. And um, they do have a few uh, laboratory type facilities off the main the main hallway. But And I think they have lots of speakers come in and, and speak, which is really cool. And if I lived in that area, I would definitely partake of that. But, uh, you know, I came away with from the experience with my usual reservations about SETI. Um, it didn't really change my mind. SETI is an effort I support. The idea of listening for um, signals, potentially intelligent signals from, from space using uh, Earth-based or space-based telescopes is something that I think is eminently worth doing, and I have no problem with that. I'd, I'd be happy to support it uh, if I thought my money was actually going to the science, the pure science. Uh -huh. Unfortunately, I think a large percentage of your money, in the case of SETI, uh, I could cite you some statistics and some and some fact-checking resources on this, but unfortunately, a large amount of your money that you donate um, to the SETI Institute seems to go to senior administrators and not to um, pure research. And uh -huh. I find that disappointing, personally. Uh -huh. Well, that pretty much... I think for a lot of people, it would blow up their whole image of what SETI is supposed to be about. I mean, you're describing a headquarters that you think guys with suits, you envision guys in suits taking meetings there. Those would not be scientists. Those would be. Well, that was my own. That was my own take. But yeah, yeah. this is uh, my my impression that this is it was kind of a flagship location where you can bring in your your potential investors. And um, I was a little disillusioned, I suppose. But then again, this is just, I'm just, this is off the cuff, just general impressions. I was not given a tour of the entire facility. I didn't get to uh, take in any, any speeches, any presentations by some of the really cool scientists that they have come and speak there. And that's a really good thing. You know, I, I didn't leave with any radically altered notion of what uh, the SETI Institute is that I didn't already uh, harbor. So mm -hmm. it, it wasn't a revelation. Uh, it wasn't 
a disappointment. It was simply, uh, it was just an interesting experience. So, uh, on a completely different topic, where were you on October 14th, Mac? <laughs> were you uh, looking at the sky? I was, in fact, I had, uh, and maybe this makes me a close-minded uh, elitist, uh, <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't bother looking at the sky on October 14th. I did, however, really enjoy a Blossom Goodchild's video. Oh. Well, enjoy isn't the right word. I watched it with a mixture of sympathy because she struck me as a genuinely confused person, and that's not something to necessarily to laugh at. But now I'm hearing rumors that, uh, oh, they got the calendar wrong. It's a different calendar calendar system, oh. and it's going to be on the 24th. And So I'm just waiting to see what happens after it fails to materialize on the 24th, and then, you know, who knows what the hell it's going to be after that. There will be no ships. I'm just tiny listeners listening that uh, are looking for and think that uh, Blossom Goodchild is was simply mistaken about the date. I am here to tell you there are no ships. They will not come. By the way, this show is being broadcast on the 26th of October. Okay. Well, there, uh, there were no this, ships. <laughs> okay. By this time, there were no ships, but no. there were all there will already be uh, rumors circulating on the on the internet that, that they got the date wrong again, and they'll be coming on the the 14th of next month, maybe. So no, I'll it's the 11th. Tell you there are it, no ships. No, no, no. Your your blog says the 11th. Uh, somebody says the it was pushed back to 11:11. Oh, 11:11. Okay, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no. Very symmetrical. Right. Well, 11:11 yeah, uh, has a nice little synchronistic ring to it. Leben, leben. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it, it's sad that, of course, you know, you hear this stuff come out. And we've, have we ever heard a prediction of something along these lines that ever came true? No, no, we haven't. And so far, the batting record is zero. And what's really stunning about that is then the media attention that this is given. Again, you oh. look at this, the, the amount of attention given to this person with this bogus claim I think was substantially more than Leslie Kane's and James Fox's press conference last November with real credible military people going on record saying, you know, there's these things, we've seen them, we know they're there, we've tracked them, we've, we've interacted with them. And people, don't, you know, they don't listen to that, but then Blossom, what's her name, Goodchild, uh, Moonshine, what's her, Blossom? <laughs> Blossom Moonshine. There you go. It's blossom moonshine, and today aliens will be landing in interdimensional tacos. I mean, you the know. Federation of Light. Well, sounds good. <laughs> it doesn't even sound good. It sounds well, like sure a, it does. a oh. really lame Star Trek concept. Well, there's that, but you know, it's it's better than the it's better than the Congregation of Dark. I actually I think I know about that one. I'll tell you something, though, that is, I believe, Star Trek a lot more than I believe Blossom Ferndock, whatever her name is. Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. 
Trump. But right now, a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380. 800-715-4380. Or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com. 1-800-715-4380. Hi, my name is Richard Dolan. You're listening to the Paracast with my two friends, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have the neat Mac Tonys with us, and he is an expert on Mars, but is not on Mars. And he also has some fascinating speculation to voice about the UFO mystery. And we're exploring a whole bunch of stuff here. You know, people on your real name. Oh, stop it. No, she seems like a, a nice lady. Look, a lot of the people in the New Age movement... That's what I meant when I said I felt sympathy for her. She yeah, didn't strike yeah. me as, a, as a, a rabid nut, you're wrong, I'm right. She struck me as a very sympathetic person, which is why I felt sorry for her. But, well, I mean, she's I, in the grips of a delusion here. So, I want to talk for a minute about the uh, culture contact event along these same lines. And we'll be talking a lot more about this with Jeremy in the, uh, in the culture contact event episode that we do with him, but... I actually ended up sitting outside the main hall and having a very long, deep discussion with none other than Stephen Bassett. We've had Bassett on the show a couple times now, and you know we've given him a platform. We've challenged him on, challenged him on some stuff. You know, I, I commend him for the na- for kind of the, the 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 spirit of what he's doing. At the same time, I've said many times, like what you said, Matt, Mac, before. I mean, I don't believe there will ever be any kind of disclosure. But the thing was. That, you know, I, Bassett showed up and did a talk, and, um, he's got this million facts thing on Washington. You know, send, uh, the government faxes right after the elections telling them you want disclosure. Uh. And, you know, forget the fact that with what's going on in this country right now, this idea that people have prioritized in any way, uh, disclosure over all the other Michigas we're going through, it's, it's just completely unrealistic. It, it has, nothing to do with the real world it just doesn't and um i sat down with bassett outside and i talked to him at length and, and i said to him Stephen, for just a moment forget that you're defending a position let's just be two people talking about this stuff you have nothing to defend there's nothing to to validate you know i want what you want i'm looking at it from a different point of view but i want what you want so let's forget all this stuff Let's have a reasonable conversation about this. And I'll tell you guys, at the end of it, I saw a different Stephen Bassett. And there were two things I felt really bad for him. I felt bad for him. I felt empathy and sympathy. I did. I felt bad for him. I, had, I have a better idea now of who he is. And it made me, because I was going to basically openly give him hell and attack him in front of the audience. And, uh, and I didn't. I, I rethought my strategy especially after speaking to him. And I realized, and I got him to admit some things off record that, you know, maybe I'll talk about in the culture contact episode that we do with Jeremy. But basically, you know, I, I, I got him to admit that essentially he was swimming against the tide, that, you know, there was just very little well, I mean, chance it's going to happen. I think he would have, I don't think that's a huge, I mean, I'm glad that he's cognizant of that, but I don't think that's something that, you know, I, would, I wouldn't expect him to deny that. I think that's, well, I think that's part of the, Part of the perceived appeal of what of what he's doing is that he's you know he's he's finding the man. Well, I, I suppose I'm not 
telling the whole story at the moment, but it it, it, it was it had more resonance than that. I mean, right. it's more than just him acknowledging that he could be wrong. It's more like him acknowledging that most likely possibility, the most likely outcome of all of this was going to be nothing, and and the futility of it. But there are people who, once they get an idea, just in order to be true to themselves, they can't let it go. Well, no how matter has it been been doing this? He's been doing it for a long time. It's got to be like seven, eight years now. Right, and that's—I mean—we're looking at a different climate back when he started, and it might have seemed like it—it might have seemed—I um, don't know—for whatever reasons, it might have seemed like a much better idea than it does now. And I would imagine there'd be quite a bit of of, of ego associated with it—not ego in a bad sense that he's trying to screw people out of their money or anything, but simply that uh, you know to back off would would look like you are um, betraying. People's trust and people's uh, people's commitment. I, I think you're you're right about that. I also think that there's so much of his own personality wrapped up in this that to admit to defeat would be admit to admit his own you know personal defeat about his life. I mean, and this is a very of the, the nature of the beast he's up against. It's daunting. It's going to vindicate his life. Well, if I the think that's the, happens. Yeah, I think that's the way he sees it, and I think that for him, if it doesn't happen. His life's not real meaningful. I, I will tell you this, guys. I mean, as far as him making any kind of financial killing on what he's done with the X conferences, it's pretty obvious that he really hasn't made much of anything. It's obvious to me. I could be wrong about that, but um, and I again, I don't want to. Probably wanna... right. I've never had the Bassett has never struck me as uh, uh, like a Greer, even though they're kind of kicking the same, kicking the same. Uh, Animal, they're not wearing the same uh, footwear. I mean, yeah, I, I've never, I've never seen in Bassett the kind of character I see in in many others that are uh, associated with the same kind of thing. I have to agree with that. I mean, you know, doing some research on Greer, one comes up with it's fairly lavish lifestyle. Bassett has no lavish lifestyle. Qu quite the contrary. Quite the contrary. And he opened up to me, and I don't want to, I don't want to abuse, you know, his trust. Not that he told me, you know, don't talk about this. I really now am in a position where I don't want to kick this guy. Before I felt a little differently. I was a little upset with some of this stuff, and and I felt like you know he needed the quote unquote paracast treatment. I don't know if I feel that way anymore. Maybe not. Maybe I'm a little more sympathetic to to his reality. And uh, and you know what? That's what I saw a lot of, and that's what I've seen a lot of at any of these events I've attended. I've seen a lot of very sweet people who are. Just they want to believe in something. Religion doesn't give them what they want. Even like their fellow humans don't give them what they want. It's almost like they're they're looking to something truly outside of themselves and their experience to give them hope. And I think that this is why you have people in the field. And we don't need to go down the list of names. The list of names are obvious. All of the, like Dr. My lovely Dr. Sue put it, the paranormal paparazzi. Which was just I, I I love her so much when she came up with that one. My God, I just I was stunned that she she came up with that. It was because it was just so perfect that you know these paranormal paparazzi they really are just preying on people who want a little bit of hope and they give them that hope. And in that sense, they're no different than the televangelists. They're no different than really the politicians who you know want to hand people a little bit of hope in exchange for some cash. It's a sad equation. In many ways, it's a sad, it's a very sad equation. I think it it tells us a lot more about ourselves than about any of uh, the various phenomena we're looking at. And 
you know, I think that ultimately, and I think you've said this before, Mac, that what we really need to do with all of this is try to learn more about how we think and how we even believe in things, the, the, the emotional, intellectual, um, the brain's, you know, systems that support right. things like, like irrational belief. Right. I think that our response to the UFO phenomenon, whatever it might be, or combination of phenomena, I think our, our response to it, our intellectually, psychologically, uh, existentially, that is part of the phenomenon. I don't think it's meaningful to address the two as two distinct areas of inquiry. I think it's one, it's one spectrum. I think, I think a, a a robust, mature form of, of UFO research would encompass both of those things. In a way, it's kind of like quantum physics. You can't you can't observe the the subatomic activity without addressing the role of observation. And you know, we are the observers to this thing, and we have you know we're freighted with all kinds of of, of baggage uh, when we address this. And if we are indeed dealing with a phenomenon that's intelligent in some sense, as I feel it is, then I think it would be foolhardy at best to ignore the possibility that uh, it's it's using, and that's a very cynical word to use, uh, maybe not the best one, uh, using or exploiting or um, however you want to put it, interacting with our own preconceptions and our own and our own beliefs. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a a crazy stance to, to take. No, but it's so much more complicated in many ways than just the standard sort of. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly it's so much easier just to look, just to stand and be like Blossom Goodchild and wait for the wait for the ships to materialize in the sky. And that's what that's what most people associated with UFOs uh, can kind of fall into that camp, whether they agree with you know that kind of prophecy or not they, right. essentially they're they're advocating the same the same approach let's wait and watch the sky and uh, and see what happens and on a certain level there's nothing wrong with that but it's inherently limiting well i it's the path of least resistance it's the easiest way out somebody on the forums had sent me an email and it was with regards to you and i want to ask you something mac and this would be curious because, you know, as much as we love talking with you, one of the things that I think we've ever really talked about mm -hmm. is something that is your main interest, transhumanism. Okay. And I had put something up about how I thought you were one of the clearer thinkers in, in, in the, the crazy sandbox we're playing in. I'll tell you what, before we talk about transhumanism and define it for everybody's benefit. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. 
And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Talking to Mac Tony's transhumanist raconteur, but he's not a man about town. <laughs> well, no, it, that sounds familiar. Why do you say that? I, mean, I don't know. Maybe he wanted town. to be, you know, conservative. What is this man about town thing that you always come up? What is, is that? Like an old Jewish New York thing? Okay, about? no. The uh, shadow in reality is Levon Cranston, the man uh, about town who discovered in the Orient the secret to cloud men's minds so they cannot see him, okay? Not everybody's 10,000 years old or has seen that Baldwin film. Anyway, um, in fact... No, it was so, a radio show for many, many years before Baldwin. I know, I know before any of us were born. Right. So here's the thing, Mac. Sorry, I have to like take my little polka gene there because he, he expects it and he, he set it up so I could do that to him. So... Mac, I got a piece of email from somebody who was offended that I thought that it was. Get this, they were they were offended that I said something nice about you because they said, "Don't you know what those transhumanists are all about?" That's what tell our transhumanists all about. Well, so that was the question. Educate us, enlighten us, Mac. What is this? What are the transhumanists? About? Why should we be scared of you? Uh, well, I, I, this person, I had me confused with somebody else. There are some, as with any novel idea, uh, there are there are groups and, that you know are, are rather radical. And um, I don't like the term, even though I use it because it, it seems like a necessary evil. Transhumanism is simply a philosophy, and it's, there's nothing incredibly incredibly unusual about it. That humans can be uh, better can be improved upon using technology. And uh, I think anyone who wears glasses is a transhumanist, by definition. Mm -hmm. So, really, that's about it. You know, it's, it, it's, there's nothing uh, faith-based about it. It's simply, uh, you know, some people who are scared of science and scared of genetic engineering and scared of nanotechnology. And there, there are reasons to be scared of, of these technologies, but there's also reasons to be scared of, of uh of coal uh, and of uh, steam power, for crying out loud. You know, I, th I think unless, unless you're a Luddite, I don't think there's really any uh, basis for any realistic uh, uh, fear of, of, of transhumanism. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a scary-sounding word, I suppose, because you don't hear it every day, and it sounds kind of like, uh, oh, I don't know. I don't like the word because I think, it's, I think like any label, it's diminishing and... Uh, Kind of spooky sounding in this case, when in fact it's really not spooky at all. No, I think we were talking about you know just the limitations of our um, of our meat-based brains earlier, and self-directed evolution. And I think the next step of our of human evolution is likely to be self-directed. We're not we're no longer going to rely on chance mutation anymore. So the question then becomes, you know, a little bit more philosophical. You know, what do we what traits do we choose to take with us? 
as a species, or you know, is this even a species a species initiative? Or I'd rather see it become intensely personal. I think all people are different and value different things. I would like to live in a world where we have the te technological means to allow each and every one of us to do whatever we would like to do, as long as we respect the uh, the boundaries of of everyone else. And uh, you know, space travel, I think, is a you know the the Overlook project. What is that? A, is that a book or a website by, by the astronauts? Uh, I think it's a collection of accounts, narratives by astronauts who have uh, who have experienced a form of altered consciousness while observing the Earth from space. Hmm. And uh, I consider space flight kind of perhaps the preeminent transhuman technology that we've been engaged in for a while because I think space travel alters consciousness and I think as we become a space-faring species if in fact we do and there's there's reason to think we might not there's reason there's plenty of reason to argue that we simply won't make it that far yeah. but if we do I think that our consciousness will be necessarily expanded but faster than it's than we're biologically equipped to and um, I think I think we need to um, augment our means of understanding, in this case, our nervous system itself, uh, and become become something different. I think that we, I think that human beings are, are kind of a larval form of intelligence, uh, great potential. But I don't think we, you know, at any any given point in history, the you know history is defined by the winners, and um, we we tend to think of ourselves as the as the acme of um, acme of evolution. You know, the greatest and the best there ever was. And, you know, I don't think so. I think that we're still in a very primitive state. I think that technologies, radical technologies like genetic engineering and nanotechnology and artificial intelligence need to be brought to bear on the human condition, not only as means of examining what we are and who we are and where we're going, but as means of transforming our potential as the, as the naked apes we are. So, that, you know, in a nutshell, that's essentially it. Well, to me, that there's all, no there's no hidden agenda behind that. I mean, it's just well, like it's just humanism with a with a with a plus mark. <laughs> well, I guess that what the guy was implying in his email to me was that uh, the transhumanists somehow look down on normal humans, and that the transhumanists, no. yeah, he got this whole thing, and I think his understanding was the transhumanists want to pull their brains out of their bodies and put it in a box. Some do, and, and be Some able to live forever. But now, do, and that's fine. It, it well, makes no difference to me. Like I said, I think this is—I think—I think transhumanist technologies, almost by definition, are democratized technologies, which will allow people to, uh, to experience reality the way they would like to experience it. Some people, if they want to opt out and live in a virtual reality for the rest of their uh, corporeal existence, then fine. But some people want to upload their brains or their their consciousness into a computer substrate, assuming that's possible. Then again, I wouldn't have any problem with it as long as it doesn't infringe on the on the rights of others. Yeah, there is an element of elitism running through some hardcore transhumanist crowds, and uh, there is a, there is a group that actually calls themselves, and I think this is creepily religious personally. But I mentioned the Rapture for Geeks earlier, um, the so-called Singularitarians, and these are people who anticipate a, a technological singularity occurring with probably in about thirty to forty years. And um, I'm a little distraught at how how literally they take this notion of a, of a technological singularity. That was a that was a term originally coined by um, scientist and, and science fiction writer Werner Venge. 
and Vinge himself has since has since kind of gone back and said, you know, this singularity thing, you know, it might not happen, <laughs> but it's since become this. You know, we're talking about UFOs as a surrogate religion for the 21st century. Yeah. And the singularity has become the same thing. It's become the mothership for so many people. Mm. So you have varying strains of, of kind of this misplaced elitism um, among transhumanists who basically they strike me as, as geeky outsiders who um, have learned some cool jargon and like to think that they're better than everyone else. But again, we're talking about a marginal element. Right. You know, we're talking about the Billy. We're talking about the Billy Meyer cultists of the technological landscape. Oh yes, we don't want to get to beyond that. But that, that's just a typical religion, though. You know, years ago it was George Adamski, George Van Tassel, and then Billy Meyer came along. And Billy Meyer, because he's still alive, has lasted longer than the others. Right. The other two are far more interesting, in my opinion. <laughs> Oh, I guess from an entertainment point of view, it's interesting. One could, you know, play cultural anthropologist. And well, I mean, the, the thing with Billy Meyer is that none of his ideas are original. If well, you yeah. Back to original contactees, you you had this. Um, you're looking at a at a phenomenon and it forming. You're looking at it while it's forming and while these ideas are crystallizing. So you can look at it from a historical perspective and learn a lot from it. Whereas I, I look at Billy Meyer and I'm not learning anything. He's just regurgitating the same old stuff. And that's what Buck yeah. About. You know, I, oh, I, I, oh, I got a great story to tell you. A friend sent me um, a deck of cards made in Japan, and yeah. each playing card has a new UFO picture on the back of it. I mean, most of them are. It just it just runs the the gamut of UFO uh, photos. Oh, that sounds great. Where do you? Oh get, yeah, some of them are total. Oh, some man. of them are interesting. Some of them are fakes. But anyway, get this: they were made in Japan, and I I can almost guarantee you that they were just randomly assigned. But anyway, uh, guess what the Joker card is? No. A Billy Meyer photo. Oh, really? Yeah, and I'm telling that's you, that's beautiful. That's just an accident. That's, that's a cosmic joke, and oh. I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> I just felt the universe laugh. That's great. Yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. Oh, we need some uh, universal laughter. Does anyone remember laughter? Oh, there's your Led Zeppelin pop reference of the day. But let me check off the little. We're gonna we're gonna do well, Steinberg in the, trans, in the future. There is no laughter. Oh, we have no need. We have no need no. for humor. Screw that. Then I don't want in on that. One. <laughs> Here's my philosophy of life, man. You know, quality of life is absolutely directly tied to the amount of one's life spent laughing. Bottom line. Oh, yeah, I agree. That, that's it. So if, if your transhumanist future has no laughter, screw your transhumanist future. I'm going to, you know, set, send it off with Carl Rove and a big bottle of lead down to the bottom of the earth. I don't want to know about it. Well, unfortunately, I think that for some, for some, Transhumanists, and again, this is a term like ufology. I don't like using because I think it's inherently divisive. But for some, yeah, I think that's kind of their view of the future. And I think, uh, like I said, this we're dealing with a marginal element. And uh, most people, tell you what, there's a really, really good um, magazine that just came out, edited by Are You Serious? Oh no, no, don't that banana head, please! Oh, no, what an on. idiot! And he is an idiot. I have known him for a long time. He's an absolute moron. I'll okay. say this publicly: he's an idiot. I've never met him, and I've never, I've never been heavily into. I read one book by him, which I didn't. I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to explode there. I'm sorry. I just, I just when I hear that name, it's like, 
Oh, it jogs me back to a lot of memories of hanging out in his place in the Berkeley Hills, uh-huh. at, which just, I, well, offline, we'll save this for, like, not for the show. I'll tell you some <laughs> are you serious stories. What a, what a potato head that guy is. <laughs> so t- tell us about his new, tell us about his new magazine, Mac. <laughs> anyway, he, uh, he he's edited. He's, I think he's one of the editors, maybe the editor. I don't know. Another new magazine just came out. And you can get a free PDF at uh, I believe the website is hplusmagazine.com, and it's just it's just a, a overview of um, breakthroughs in gerontology and genetics and future technologies. Um, you know what transhumanism is? You remember? Uh, do you remember the? Um, when you were a kid and you're looking at comics or reading Robert Heinlein books, and there was this organization called, uh, what was it called? The Futurians, I think. Yeah, the Futurians. You yeah, know, yeah, join sure. the Futurians. You know, forward thinking people interested in future technologies and space exploration, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That's what transhumanism is, except it's a fancy new word for a new generation. I'll tell you what, we don't have much time left, and I want to focus back for listeners who want to get more of the stuff that Mac Tony's is known for. You have a regular blog. I have a blog, that is correct. And tell people about it and where they can find more information. Or even uh, the content is more important than that. Yeah, the content the content is varied, but it's lots of uh, just kind of eclectic observations, uh, some original content, lots of links to things I think are interesting. It's always just stuff I, I personally like. I don't do it for the I don't do it for the to get hits. It's not an aggregate in that sense. But anyway, it's called Post Human Blues, and you can reach it from my. I recommend just for brevity's sake, just going to MacTonys.com, and you'll find several little links down at the bottom. You can view photos. You can view my blog, etc. And you have this strange alien person. creature on the front page there. <laughs> I do indeed. It's a self-portrait taken in a video monitor. It, it does make me look like a strange alien creature. But you are a strange alien creature. You've been hiding this information from us all this time. Would I admit it if I was? I would hope not. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> Remember, we can't can, handle can the truth. There's over. another movie reference. Write that down, David. Oh, boy. You can't handle the truth. But tell us, seriously, to the book right. on crypto-terrestrials, because we've had few discussions on that and we're really fascinated yeah. when do you think when, we'll see the book yes when is yeah that's the big question when uh right now as, as soon as i finish it as far as i know the publisher is still totally sympathetic to it and wants me to finish it so since it's been procrastination i, I i'll freely admit that here on the Paracast. I, I have i've been uh i don't know my, my mind can still wander and um i should have sat down and Finished that up a long time ago. The cases I'm concentrating on now in the most recent writing, I'll, I'll probably be posting some excerpts on my blog here pretty soon. But the cases that I'm laying the groundwork for lay readers who haven't, who aren't immersed in the alien abduction literature as I am, which probably any healthy person shouldn't be. <laughs> but, um, the but then if we were healthy, we wouldn't be doing this show, right? <laughs> well, that, that came out kind of wrong. But uh, no, I think I think it's I think it's perfectly acceptable to have a inordinate interest in uh, alien abductions, provided of course you got you know you're doing other things. But anyway, the cases I find very interesting from this crypto terrestrial perspective are the Betty and Barney Hill abduction, the Antonio Villas Boas case, um, the Father Gill sighting, and possibly the um, the Socorro sighting with 
I can't think of his name. Lonnie, Lonnie Zamora. Lonnie Zamora. Zamora. Lonnie Zamora. There we right. go. Right. Yeah, uh, those are those are some cases I think that I find solid that I that I think lend themselves in several respects. They each case has little tantalizing details that I think are suggestive of a of a terrestrial origin for this phenomenon. And I'm not, I'm not claiming that all UFO cases can be ascribed to the same the same crypto terrestrial umbrella. They don't necessarily fall under that. But there are some cases that I think have a for lack of a better term, they have a theatrical flavor um, that suggests manipulation. Specifically, uh, someone manipulating the nature of, of this experience to make it seem like it's from outer space, that it hails from outer space. But that doesn't reflect what we would actually expect this to be. Well, I tell you what, we're out of time on that score. Go to MacTonys.com for more information, some excerpts of the book in the near future, and maybe even the publication date. Thank you, MacTonys, for joining us this week on the Paracast. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed being on. And you are always welcome on this show, Mac. We love talking with you. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.